The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Okay, good evening and a very warm welcome to tonight's lecture. It's held in association with the Loyola Institute as part of their Column Kill in Context series, organized by our speaker tonight, Dr. Alexander O'Hara. My name is Kieran O'Neill. I'm Deputy Director of Trinity Longroom Hub. That's Trinity's flagship arts and humanities research, research institute. And it's my great pleasure to welcome tonight's speaker to the Hub this evening and to introduce him to our very extensive online audience, uh, online audience tonight. It's testament to the enduring public and academic interest in his chosen topic tonight in a lecture entitled Free Men Out with the Tribe, Exiles for Christ from St. Patrick to Killian. But it's also testament to the wide interest in our speaker's exceptional scholarship. Alexander is currently a Fulbright and visiting scholar in the Department of Celtic Languages and Literatures at Harvard University, having previously been a research fellow in historical theology of the Early Irish Church at the Loyola Institute here in Trinity College, Dublin. He's a graduate of Oxford and St Andrews, and Alex has held prestigious research positions at the Institute for Medieval Research at the Austrian Academy of Sciences in Vienna and the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He's the author of five books, including Jonas of Bobbio and the Legacy of Columbanus, uh, Oxford University Press 2018, He's the editor of Columbanus and the Peoples of Post-Roman uh, Europe, uh, also OUP 2018. And his latest book is a collection of essays uh, that explores the medieval cult of the Irish Saint Suniva, patron of Bergen and Western Norway. That's Saint Suniva, Irish Queen, Norwegian patron saint with Bergen 2021. So some housekeeping uh, before I cede the platform to Alex. Uh, the event is being streamed live on Facebook and will thus be recorded. If audience members would like to ask a question and we very much encourage you to do so, uh, then please do use the Q&A panel at the bottom of your screen. As with everything we run here at the Long Room Hub, we want uh, our audience to participate and to be involved. So please do interact with us during the event. And now I'm going to hang, hand over to Alex. Thanks very much, uh, Kieran, and uh, thank you to all at the uh, Trinity Long Room Hub for uh, organizing uh, this evening's uh, event. Uh, it's a great pleasure to, to be here and, and uh, uh, thank you all for joining. I'm just gonna switch to uh, my PowerPoint So this is part a, of a series uh, of lectures that uh, I've been organizing through the uh, Loyola Institutes over the past year to commemorate the 15th centenary of the birth of St. Columba or Columkill uh, of Iona uh, this year. And it's been an attempt to bring together uh, early medieval historians and theologians to uh, talk about the, the legacy of Column Kill and, and the early Irish church. 
Um, so this is the, the sixth uh, lecture in, in this series uh, out of seven. Um, and it's part of my new book project, uh, which I'm working on uh, here uh, in Harvard um, on imagining Ireland and the Irish from classical antiquity to the Anglo-Norman conquest, really looking in terms of cultural perception and how um, others have seen Ireland and, and the Irish over the long durée. So this, this talk this evening is really uh, um, work in progress from, uh, from this uh, uh, book project. In the late Roman imagination, the Irish were considered to be less than human. Ireland was, to use an analogy from Aldous Huxley's 1932 novel, A Brave New World, the savage lands of the late antique world. Ireland and the Irish were synonymous with barbarism and savagery in the Roman colonial imagination. It was a place where ethnographic fantasies and imagined geographies could be projected, a classical precursor to Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. The upper-class Romano-Briton Patricius, who we now know as St. Patrick, was captured by Irish pirates while a teenager growing up in Western Britain. He would have been well aware of Ireland's notorious reputation in the social imaginary of the late antique world. As a slave and a shepherd on the west of Ireland, he would have been in no doubt that he had come to the ends of the earth. The nascent church in Ireland was a church of slaves. And it was to these enclaves of Christians that Pope Celestine I sent Bishop Palladius to Ireland in 431, and to which Patricius later returned as a bishop in the mid fifth century. Patrick understood his mission to Ireland in apostolic and Pauline terms. The voices of the Irish that had famously beckoned him back, uh, as he mentions in his Confessio. In his two surviving writings, the Confessio and his letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, Patrick emphasized Ireland's remoteness and liminality, stressing that the gospel had now reached the ends of the earth. This is from his Confessio. The eschatological implications of this were clear to Patrick, as this meant that Christ's mandate to his apostles at his ascension in Jerusalem had now been fulfilled. Jerusalem, the place of Christ's resurrection, was understood to be geographically located at the center of the world, while Ireland was situated at the remotest edge. Sorry to interrupt you, Alex. Can I just can check with you because the slides don't seem to be moving forward at this point? Should they already have moved forward at this stage? Oh yes, yes. Can can you switch? Can you switch to? Absolutely, no problem. I'll yeah. switch over here. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for that. Oh yeah. Great. Sorry, is that the correct slide for you now? Uh, yes, that, that's correct. Um, I'm just, I'm trying to get back to my notes now. Um, no, okay. Let me actually, let me go back, Francesca. 
Yeah, that's that's fine. That's perfect. Uh, we'll we'll continue from there. This is the earliest uh, surviving representation of the crucifixion uh, in Ireland. Um, and as I was saying, the the mandate that Christ gives to his apostles uh, at, at the ascension is to go baptize all nations and preach the gospel to the ends of uh, of the earth. And we see. Patrick really framing his mission to Ireland within within these terms. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, next slide. So Patrick is is stressing Ireland's liminality, um, but it's also the place where um, uh, the gospel has come to the ends of the earth, thus unlocking the time of the parousia or uh, the imminent return uh, of, of Christ. So there's a eschatological uh, uh, element uh, to this. Um, Ireland was no longer peripheral but central to God's plan for universal salvation. So this small island on the, on the edge of the known world, the faraway coastlands prophesied by the prophet Isaiah, now entered uh, center stage. Uh, next slide, please. Patrick writes about converts to religious life and the early monastics and consecrated women who joined him. And Patrick even identifies himself as the first honorary Irishman. In writing to the British slavers, the soldiers of Caroticus, who had captured and enslaved some of his Irish converts to sell to pagans, Patrick writes that it is scandalous to them that we are Irish. Now, this is a different translation here, but it, um, in the Latin, it's indignum est illis hiberionaci sumus, that we are uh, Irish. By his remarkable assertion, Patrick reveals the ethnic disdain and condescension that must have been typical of late Roman colonial attitudes towards the Irish. Like in the film, The Mission, where the early Jesuit missionaries in Latin America identify with and take the side of their indigenous converts in response to Portuguese colonial efforts to enslave them for profit, Patrick similarly takes the side of his exploited converts. It's the only place in both of Patrick's writings where he specifically identifies with the Irish. Um, at the beginning of his letter, he refers to the Irish as barbarian Gentiles, barbarian peoples. Uh, Patrick is fundamentally uh, Roman. He has a Roman uh, sense of identity. Um, but in identifying with the Irish here, he appears to be modeling St. Paul, who writes in his uh, letter to the, to the Corinthians, the first letter, um, that Paul has made himself um, a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. Um, and through the grace of baptism, ethnic divisions have been erased. And we see here that Patrick further cites the prophet Malachi. Uh, Do you not have one God? Why have you abandoned each one of you, his own neighbor? For Patrick, conversion and baptism had turned a once idolatrous people into a people of God, as he writes in his Confessio. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, 
And this is uh, showing a recent uh, idol, eight foot uh, idol that was discovered in County Ross Common during the uh, COVID uh, pandemic. And it's, it's, it's quite, quite remarkable, an anthropomorphic uh, figure. Um, and it's been radiocarbon dated to uh, around between the third and, and, and the fifth, fifth century. So around the time that um, uh, um, of, of, of Patrick's mission or before, just before Patrick's, uh, Patrick's mission. But when writing of Patrick, we were really dealing with two distinct cultural subjects. The historical Patrick who wrote the two fifth century autobiographical documents that survive and the hagiographical Patrick who comes from two distinct late seventh century works of hagiography or writing about the saints uh, that were written to remote the cult uh, of St. Patrick. So how do these later seventh century writers talk about Ireland and the Irish? Uh, next slide, please. In Mirku's Life of Patrick, written in the late seventh century, the author depicts the dramatic conversion of Ireland by Patrick, who's presented as a kind of second Moses. Uh, he refers to Ireland at the beginning of the work as this barbarian island, and to the Irish Sea as our sea. Uh, Ireland is this island in the cold north. Um, but when Patrick arrived in Ireland, he went to the king of Tara, Logara, who is described as an emperor of non-Romans, with Tara depicted here as being his caput scotorum, or the capital of the Irish, and his dynasty, the Enail, uh, held the kingship of almost the entire Ireland. Merku mentions the different kingdoms of Ireland, but the focus is on Tara and the plain of Brega stretching uh, uh, the back of the photo here, because it was there that this, the, the greatest kingdom among the tribes, the head of all paganism and idolatry, and he refers to it as the Egypt of this our island. And in the famous account of Patrick uh, lighting the paschal fire on the hill of Slane nearby in defiance of the king, Patrick is shown as having led the people of Ireland into uh, the true religion that Easter night. And the subsequent dramatic showdown with the king and his druids vindicates Christianity as the more powerful religion. But to emphasize the triumph of Christianity brought by Patrick, uh, Murku highlights the pagan barbarism of the Irish, but is at pains to show the vitality of paganism so that Patrick's achievement is all the more uh, noteworthy. As Thomas O'Loughlin has noted, the meeting of the two cultures is a meeting of equals. There is as much glory in Ireland as in any of the courts which the word of God has previously uh, encountered. Uh, next slide, please. So the other hagiographical work on Patrick written around the same time is that of Tyrachon, known as the Collectinea. Both Tyrachon and Wirku relied on earlier oral traditions and a written dossier compiled by Bishop Ulton Makroconcour of Connor, who fostered Tyrachon and who died in 657. Tyrachon's account of Patrick reads like a kind of a travel itinerary throughout Ireland with a geographical focus on the west of Ireland, Connacht, where Tyrachon himself came from. Tyrachon shows a strong regional tribal uh, and territorial interest 
but framed within the context that Patrick is a bishop over Ireland, whose primacy over the whole island and its people has been given to him by God. The Irish do not come across well in this account, as Tyrachon laments, uh, next slide please, Uh, just the the um, the warlords who hate Patrick's territorial uh, supremacy and uh, who resented uh, resented him, um, but that um, he has been given Ireland through through an angel uh, of of the Lord. In traveling in Connacht, Patrick climbed Crookon Agley, now known as Crowpatrick following the example of Moses, Elijah, and Christ, where he spent 40 days and nights. Uh, next slide, please. Tyrkon stipulated that it was divine command that all the holy men of Ireland, past, present, and future, should climb to the summit in imitation of Patrick in order to bless the people of Ireland. So both Murku and Tyrkon give a mixed impression of Ireland and the Irish. One was that that was not afraid to stress the paganism and barbarism of the Irish in order to show the singular achievements of Patrick and his fellow missionaries in their struggle to bring the gospel to this remote island. Next slide, please. So the period of endemic plague, the Justinianic pandemic, which was especially severe from 542 to 590, must have contributed to the eschatological sense of urgency that is a characteristic feature of this period of the early Middle Ages. And it's following this Justinianic plague that came from Constantinople, now uh, Istanbul, this map is showing the kind of spread of the pandemic, pandemic from the east to the west had reached, reached Ireland, and also some of the um, death rates. Uh, it was quite a severe uh, uh, pandemic in terms of uh, depopulation and de decline in, in, in population and it also, also coincided with the, what's called the little ice age so a, a, a downturn in terms of uh, a climate uh, during during this period um, but it's it's following it's following this kind of pandemic uh, that the um, Irish church begins to turn outwards um, uh, next slide please And it's in 543 that the 41-year-old monk Columba left with 12 other monks from Northern Ireland and sailed across to Britain. So this is a, a new icon written by one of Ireland's leading iconographers, Colette Clark, um, showing Columba holding uh, the cock, the Book of Psalms that we're going to, 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 to see in a minute, um, and to, to commemorate the... Uh, the 15th centenary uh, of his birth this year. He was received by the King of Scottish uh, Dalrieta, who supported his monastic foundation on the island of Iona in the Outer Hebrides. Columba was a member of the Northern Inail, the most powerful royal dynasty in Ireland, and his cousin became High King of Ireland. Um, and Columba himself would have been eligible for the High Kingship uh, had he not entered uh, religious life. By leaving Ireland as an ascetic exile or peregrinus, Columba could further pursue his monastic vocation unencumbered by the dynastic squabbles in Ireland. 
He would still act as a late antique holy man, brokering peace deals, prophesying, cursing, and preaching, but exile gave the middle-aged monk a fresh canvas to work from. Most of what we know about Columba comes from Adivnon, the ninth abbot of Iona, and a descendant of the saint's kin, who wrote about a hundred years after Columba's death, but who drew upon an extensive hagiographical dossier based on oral and written accounts that had been compiled soon after the saint's death. Next slide, please. So Adivnon's Vita Columbae, or Life of Columba, is one of the most remarkable and unusual saints' lives from the early Middle Ages, a work of magical surrealism akin to the novels of Gabriel Garcia Marquez. The unusual structure of the work in three parts or books dealing with Columbus' miracles, prophecies, and angelic visions, and lack of narrative chronology, gives the impression of staccato blog posts in which the saint appears as an ethereal and rather eccentric figure. But Adhanom's purpose was to write a hagiography at the request of the Iona community, most likely to commemorate the first centenary of the saint's death in 697, and he clearly drew upon long-standing oral traditions. His portrait of Columba is of a man full of the Holy Spirit, a man who enjoyed the company of angels, and who was gifted with foreknowledge and prophetic powers. But Advenon was an accomplished theologian, having written a book on the holy places in Jerusalem some years before. And it has been argued that both this work and the Vita Columbae should be read as a kind of a diptych. It now appears that the monastic layout on Iona was consciously modeled on Jerusalem and the layout of the Holy Sepulchre, so that Iona has been referred to as the Jerusalem of the North. Uh, next slide, please. So this is showing um, Advenon's description of the Holy Sepulchre uh, on the left uh, in his in his work, uh, De Loki Sanctis. Um, and then on the right, we have the monastic layout uh, of Iona at the time of, of uh, Adnan. Uh, and that's a reference to um, an excellent article you can find online, uh, which really goes more in depth into this uh, kind of modeling on, on, on Jerusalem. Uh, next slide, please. But the whole island of Iona was considered a, a holy island, uh, a place that was set apart um, with the monastic enclosure and the, and the church located within uh, the monastic vallum or enclosure, marking progressive gradients of, of sacred space. And David Jenkins has um, a wonderful book on this in the sense of that the, the three levels of sacred space are again modeled on the temple uh, in Jerusalem with the three more progressive spaces uh, leading to the, the Holy of Holies. And next slide, please. So we saw how Collect Clark was inspired by the Kahok uh, um, in, in her writing of the icon of, of, uh, of St. Columba. And Columba was remembered as a poet and scribe, and Ireland's oldest uh, manuscript of the Psalter, an earliest example of Irish writing, the Cahoc or, or Battler, may have been written by the saint's own hand. It was certainly venerated as a relic 
uh, of the saint. It was called the battler because it was brought into battle uh, by uh, Columbus um, uh, uh, dynastic uh, family in the north, the, uh, the O'Donnells, uh, as a kind of talisman in, in battle. Three poems have also been ascribed to Columba, Altus Prosator, Adjutor Laborantium, and Noli Pater. The Altus Prosator is a sweeping cosmic hymn with a concern for the last things. While the hymns give us a fleeting glimpse of the theological outlook of Columba, they reveal little else. The elegy that was written after Columba's death in 597 by Dalon, the Amra Columcilla, was commissioned by his relative, uh, Aed Mac Anmarek, the King of Kenel Connell in uh, County Donegal and the High King of Ireland. The poet was writing for a mixed audience of secular nobles and Columbus monastic contemporaries. While espousing the norms of Gallic poetry in praise of a dead hero, Dalin presents a new ascetic model of heroic virtue that subverts secular warrior ideals. Columbus' royal, dynastic, and familial connections are highlighted. So he talks about his uh, Columbus' great-great-grandfather, Nile of the, the Nile Nine Hostages, the founder of the Nile dynasty. Um, he, Columbus portrayed as a prophet, exegete, leader of nations. Um, but in a sense, Columbus is a Christian anti-hero who turns secular aristocratic conventions on their head. His royal connections are stressed to emphasize his radical renunciation. From among an idolatrous people, he abandoned, he abandoned possessions. And the title from this lecture, um, A Free Man Outwit the Tribe, I declare the son of Fidelmid, he forgot the tribe, he knew his end. His motive for leaving Ireland is ascribed to his having a fear of hell. And a covenant is mentioned with uh, Connell, the king of Scottish Dalriata, who in the Annals of Ulster is said to have granted uh, Iona to Columba. So the poet emphasizes the regional and dynastic in his elegy, while the Irish are referred to disparagingly as an idolatrous people. So Columbus' ascetic exile is depicted as having been purgative, which would fit with Adenon's later dating of Columbus' exile following the Battle of Cool Drevna in 561, in which Columbus' kin defeated the High King, Jermot MacCarville, and which was obviously the political background to Columbus' exile. So next, next slide, please. In full rare column by Beckon MacLigdoch, a Columban monk and hermit writing about 50 years after Columba's death. He clarifies that Columba crucified his body on the gray waves, not for crime, so not exiled for a criminal offense, but uh, voluntarily. His family and regional connections are again highlighted. Um, and in, in, in one verse, Beckon says that Columba left Ireland, entered a pact, um, crossed in ships the whale shrine, a bold man over the sea's ridge. So the poet is stating that Columbus' exile was a kind of a covenant, a covenant with God, and voluntary, uh, presumably um, establishing a covenant in, in the north. And we have frequent images of candles and light um, uh, contrasted with the darkness of the north. Uh, he's referred to as Britain's beacon, um, and 
very strong image, imagery of, of light and, and candles. We find the same imagery in another poem by Beckon uh, Tofed Andes, um, where he's referred to as Connacht's candle and that he was exalted all around Ireland. The poet notes that in scores of curracks, uh, with an army of wretches, he crossed the long-haired sea, and they'd brought northward to meet the Lord a bright crowd of chancels. Next slide, please. Uh, next slide. So this is um, one of my favorite uh, pieces of insular um, uh, sculpture. It's called the Monk Stone from, uh, from Shetland. Um, and it's uh, dated to around the, the 8th century. It's around the time that uh, later uh, monks from Ireland and Britain were sailing into the North Atlantic to places like Faroes and Shetlands um, uh, for uh, ascetic retreats, generally sea seasonal uh, retreats. But it depicts beautifully this, this idea of crossing the sea. You have the abbot here on, on a horse. Uh, the monk at the front is holding a gospel book uh, and then the, 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 the cross um, uh, at, at the end. Um, the next slide, please. But there's also a um, uh, this image of the north as the seat of evil. And of course, in the biblical worldview, the north was the direction of evil. And it's where the gospel uh, uh, during mass was proclaimed facing the north in the hope of converting the barbarians to, to Christ. This is where Gog of the land of Magog would come to deceive the nations. In the prophet Ezekiel, God says to Gog, you will come from your place in the far north, you and many nations with you, all of them riding on horses, a great horde, a mighty army. You will advance against my people, Israel, like a cloud that covers the land. And we have the same uh, image in the uh, book of, of Re Revelation. So there are apocalyptic associations here, together with the imagery of Columba being a candle and lies piercing the midnight of Irk's region, uh, referring to, to Scottish Dalrieta. Next slide, please. So in order really to fully understand what monks, like those who went to Skellig Michael depicted here, or um, uh, the island retreats in, in the North Atlantic, what they were actually up to, um, I think this is fundamental to understanding uh, their worldview and as um, these places of being buttresses uh, facing the north um, and uh, um, as kind of bastions really of, of, of prayer. Um, and it was actually a, um, a film in development uh, called End Time about uh, Columba Viona due to be played by uh, Jeremy Irons, who I think would make a wonderful uh, Columba. So I do hope uh, that continues in, in, in production, but uh, it's, I think the title is also suggestive that the, 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 the movie is concerned with, uh, with, with these, with these uh, issues. So the poet Beckon was a member of the Enail, as were most of Columba's abatial successors. 
It's the familial and dynastic associations that we find in the earliest Colombian poetry is not surprising. This is also the case in Adebron's Vita Colombe, where Columbus' familial and regional links come to the fore. Adebron is conscious of ethnic identities, but Ireland and the Irish are mentioned in passing without any particular semiotic weight or, or significance. There's no sense in Adebron of Ireland or the Irish as being a holy place or people set apart. He is even disparaging about uh, the Irish language at the very beginning of, of the Vita Columbe. Adebron notes patronymics and tribal affiliations of many of the Ionian monks and others outside the community. He clearly drew upon an established oral and written tradition that had been compiled from the early seventh century. While his interest in the Holy Land is obvious and Iona appears to have been modeled on the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, his writing about Ireland and the Irish, we can say is, is quite neutral. Next slide, please. So Columba's near contemporary and namesake, often confused and, and mixed up, uh, Columba the Younger or Columbanus, as he's better known, who left Bangor Abbey around 590, has left us with, with the most complete literary corpus of any early Irish saint. And these are two other icons written by Colette Clark, uh, Columbanus on the left and St. Gaul, his disciple uh, on the right, that are now in uh, Bangor um, Catholic uh, Parish Church. Um, the beautiful uh, depiction of the Bangor uh, saints uh, in, in the church there. Uh, and uh, Gaul is depicted with a bear who very helpfully brings a log of wood for the fire uh, in return for, for a piece of bread. One of the um, uh, features in, in, in his uh, hagiography. And this map showing the um, kind of itinerary of, of Columbanus uh, when he left uh, Bangor. So he was a generation younger than his Ionan namesake, and he would have been born around the, the, the time that the Justinianic plague was raging in the mid-sixth century, accompanied also by 12 monks, because we have this Christological element here, but also that uh, you needed a cohort of 12 monks to form an independent uh, 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 monastic uh, community. But there is clearly a Christological uh, element uh, in um, in, 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 these, in these groups. And he's, he's drawn southwards uh, to continental Europe. His monasteries, all of them are dedicated to St. Peter, uh, suggests that he was influenced by the sacred topography uh, of, of Rome. And in his letters to successive popes, Columbanus emphasized Ireland's liminality at the ends of the earth and the orthodoxy of the Christian faith in Ireland, which he says was brought from Rome and which has been maintained. He stressed the orthodoxy of the Irish church and used a range of ethnonyms for the Irish. Next slide, please. Columbanus was the first person to express an Irish sense of identity in writing. In a letter to Pope Boniface IV, written from Milan in 613, two years before his death, Columbanus reassured the Pope and the Irish uh, that the Irish were and had always been orthodox. And we see this kind of play of uh, uh, liminality here uh, uh, again. But for Columbanus, Ireland's peripherality was precisely what contributed to the pristine and orthodox nature of the Catholic faith in Ireland. 
In an Italy riven by political and religious divisions, Columbanus emphasized the Catholic faith had been preserved untarnished. So in contrast to the classical and late antique perceptions that equated Ireland's marginality with barbarism, uh, Columbanus flips this um, and he, he, he presents a new vision of Ireland and the Irish as a bulwark of, uh, of, Christian, uh, of Christian faith. Next slide, please. So Columbanus's more inclusive and ideological view of Ireland influenced or was shared by other Irish exiles in a circle. In the hagiographical account written two decades after Columbanus's death, the Italian monk, Jonas of Bobbio, inserted a poem in Ireland at the beginning of his work. Due to the complex Hiberno-Latin style in which it was written, and to a reference to the coasts of Ireland as our famous shores, we know that the poem was not the work of Jonas. It was more likely penned by one of Columbanus's Irish companions, perhaps a monk at Bobbio, who had accompanied the saint from Bangor. Uh, and this is, this is a, a translation of the poem. It's the earliest poem uh, about Ireland. And you see that actually it's, it's not about uh, Columbanus at all. Uh, it's, it starts um, with Ireland, with kind of the waves bashing the, the coast. It's quite uh, evocative in terms of the, the imagery uh, that, it's, that it's using. But it's essentially a poem about the sun and a kind of quite a peculiar um, uh, reverse course of the sun from west, north, and then back to the east. Um, and it's essentially about uh, renewal. Um, maybe alluding to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, the sun rises, the sun sets, then to its place it speeds, and there it rises. Southward goes the wind, then turns to the north, it turns and turns again. Back then to its circling goes the wind. But of course, the east is where Christ will return at the end of time, while as we've seen, the north was the place of evil for, um, and where retribution will come. Um, next slide, please. For early Christians, Christ was often associated with the son of righteousness, the Christos Helios, as depicted here in a third century mosaic in the mausoleum of the Julii under St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican, which portrays Jesus as the sole invictus, the unconquered son, driving the horses of the son's chariot. Columbanus, in his letter of 613 to Pope Boniface, calls Christ the supreme driver of that chariot, true father, charioteer of Israel, alluding to the book of Kings, where the prophet Elijah ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot. In Columbanus's letter, the coming of Christianity to Ireland is represented as a sun that rises in the east and crosses the sky into the west. Now that the sun has reached Ireland, it has reached its furthest point in the west and its journey is complete. For Columbanus, the conversion of Ireland marked the culmination of the process of Christianization. He credits this as the work of the Roman church for the chariot of Christ was drawn by the apostles, uh, Peter and Paul. So the conversion of the Irish marked the realization of Rome's universal mission. And the preeminence, of course, of Rome for Columbanus rested primarily on its status as the burial place of the apostles, Peter and Paul, 
and as the epicenter of Christianity in the West, not in the fact that it had been a great world uh, empire. He characterized the spread of Christianity to Ireland as coming from across the seas directly from Rome. So we see in, in contrast to earlier perceptions, Columbanus stressed the inclusiveness of Ireland as a member of the universal church. Um, now that the gospel had been preached the ends of the world, the eschaton or Christ's second coming was imminent and Columbanus and, and his monks taking the message of the gospel of Christ, the son from the West back into the heartlands of the former Roman empire, uh, heralded Christ's imminent return and the end of time. Jonas inserts this rather unusual uh, poem at the very beginning of his life of, of Columbanus. Um, and it's because just after that, uh, he, he gives an account of um, uh, Columbanus's birth, uh, where his mother saw a vision of the sun shining from her womb that would illuminate uh, the whole world. But of course, this is also the biblical looks of, uh, of the Gospel of John. Um, but this image again of light of, of the sun is one that uh, later hagiographers would, would use as well. Um, uh, so the Carolingian writer Wallafred Strabo, writing the ninth century, likened Columbanus to a bright ray of the fiery sun. So the first poem about Ireland written by one of Columbanus's Irish monks is a tantalizing testament to how these men perceived the homeland they left behind and their mission as exiles from the ends of the earth. And we see for the very first time a new perception of Ireland and the Irish um, um, taking hold or, or uh, the genesis of this, of this new perception. Uh, next, next slide. This is what Jonah says immediately after uh, uh, this, this poem. This view of Ireland and the Irish was completely new and is the antithesis to the classical and late antique perception. And Jonas's um, note here is undoubtedly the result of his contact with Irish monks uh, in Bobbio and this kind of cultural mixing, uh, which um, these, these Columbanian monastic communities uh, consisted of in terms of different ethnic, ethnic peoples. Um, but it also shows us how the Irish themselves are beginning to shape the perception of, of their homeland. Uh, um. So Colin Bannis was informed by, by a Pauline theology that saw all baptized peoples as being part of the body of Christ. Christianity provided a universal sense of fraternity to this exile conscious of operating in a complex pluralist society. And concord and unity were key themes in his writings. In many ways, Columbanus is an Irish exceptionalist, pleading for a special status due to his standing as an exile, an immigrant, and his recourse to Irish monastic custom. Although not explicit, an eschatological expectancy seems to lie in the background of his exile, 
within which Ireland's liminal position fits within the perspective of an imminent parousia. Colin Bannis is the first to challenge and subvert the late antique perception of Ireland as a savage island, but clearly drawing on the same eschatological scaffolding as we find in Patrick's writing, reflecting a common early Irish theological perspective. Colin Bannis reveals for the first time how an Irish person understood his homeland within the perspective of salvation history. Emerging from this eschatological theology, a new perception of Ireland and the Irish arose, which is most fully seen in this first poem uh, about Ireland. Next slide, please. Around the time that Jonas is writing the, his life of Columbanus in around 642, another Irish holy man arrived in Northern Gaul, the visionary and monastic founder of Furza. So this is showing Kilursa uh, near my home place in, in Galway um, uh, and a statue of, of St. Furza or Furzi. He left Ireland in 633 with his two brothers, Fulon and Ulton. And he's the first recorded Irish peregrinus to Anglo-Saxon England, establishing a monastery at Knob Harrisburg um, in East Anglia under the patronage of the local king. So next slide, please. This is showing the, the site, um, presumed site of uh, Furza's uh, monastery. It's, it's, a Roman, it's a Roman fort uh, uh, now in, in Norfolk that was, uh, was given to him. Around a decade later in 644, he continued to northern France, where he founded a monastery at Lagny-sur-Marne under the patronage of the most powerful Frankish noble, the mayor of the palace uh, called Erkinwald. When he died around 649, Erkinwald buried him at Peron, where his cult developed. An account of Furza's life and visions was written down soon after, around 656, for the translation of the saint's relics, uh, written by a near contemporary of the saint. The account is largely focused on what we would call near-death experiences uh, and visions he received in Ireland of heaven and, and hell. Next slide, please. So this is showing uh, modern-day Peron, also known as Perona Scotorum or Peron of the Irish, um, due to, to uh, Furza's cult there and uh, um, the later connections with, uh, uh, with um, uh, Irish uh, monast monastics. So the author of the Transitus Beati Furzi, also known as the Visio Furzi or the Vision of, of Furza, was likely not Irish as he shows no interest in Furza's genealogy or family background, unlike as we've seen with, with Adavnon. After Furza's visions, he was advised by two local holy men to preach the word of God to the princes of this land of Ireland, that departing from iniquity, they may come by repentance to salvation of souls. He preached to all the peoples of the Irish, traveling around for one year amongst the, the people of the island of Ireland. So his visions must have taken place in the 620s, as after 10 years traveling around uh, Ireland, uh, he left the country. The reasons given were to escape the growing popularity and the consequent envy that this aroused in certain enemies of his growing reputation. And the implication is that the Irish clergy uh, became jealous. After going to a first island, uh, small island with a group of monks, 
um, he continued through Wales into Anglo-Saxon England. The author depicts Ferza as a missionary preacher who tamed the heart of the barbarian English. After establishing his monastery and the continued support of Sigebert's successor, his cousin Anna, Ferza joined his brother Ulton as a hermit for a year. When the province was in danger from the heathen king Penda, he left for Gaul where he won the patronage of Erkinwald and established Lanyi. And soon after he died, Erkinwald brought his body uh, to, to Peron where his cult uh, uh, developed. Um, and the author notes that Ferza had brought with him relics of Saints Patrick and two other uh, Irish uh, saints, uh, which were venerated uh, in Peron. And that the, the shrine of Ferza was made by a famous goldsmith uh, who became uh, Bishop Eligius um, of Noyon. Um, Bede, the uh, great Northumbrian uh, monk and, and historian, drew upon this source for his account of Ferza when he wrote his ecclesiastical history of the English people, which he completed in 731. The near contemporary author of the Transitus, who may have known the saint was clearly not Irish, portrays a general neutral account of Ireland and the Irish. Ferza, after all, leaves his homeland due to spite and envy of those who resented his reputation, while he'd been told to preach to the princes of Ireland repentance both to the secular elite and to the priests in Ireland for loving the world and its riches more than the care for souls. So Ireland is no idyllic land of saints in this account. Next slide, please. Around the same time that the Transitus was written, a Frankish uh, warrior turned monk named Wandrigisel or Saint-Wandry in French, established a monastery about 180 kilometers away at Fontanella, now Saint-Wandry, after a time spent in Bobbio, Columbanus's monastic foundation in Northern Italy. He is said to have had a desire to go on peregrinatio to Ireland. Uh, whether he did or didn't, we, we don't know. Um, well, this is early evidence of a kind of reverse uh, pilgrimage or reverse exile uh, to Ireland clearly motivated by the example of the Irish Peregrini to go as an exile to Ireland. Um, and this is the monastery written about in, in Patrick Lee, Lee's Furmore's uh, wonderful reflection, uh, um, a time to keep silence um, about uh, monastic life and contemplation and, and where uh, Lee Furmore used, used to go on, on, on retreats. That's, it's, it's now in, in Normandy. And Jonas tells us about another Frankish monk uh, called Altiernus, who had the same desire to go to Ireland uh, uh, as, as an exile, um, but who was um, brought by Columbanus into the, into the woods to fast and to discern um, uh, uh, the, the workings of the Holy Spirit, whether this indeed was, was God's will for him to, to go to Ireland. And if, it was, of course, from Ireland that English monks such as the Northumbrian missionary Willibrord set out on their mission to convert the pagans of Frisia and, and Germany from the monastery of Rathmelski in County uh, Carlo, Clonmelch. Next slide, please. This is all that remains of the important 
uh, monastery at, at, at Melsky, Clonmelsh in County Carlow, um, showing a cross here. Um, this is really where the English mission to the continent uh, kicks off in the later uh, 7th century. And it's from around this area that Columbanus uh, uh, would, have, would have come from. So it's um, uh, this part of southern County Carlow uh, where uh, he likely uh, came from. Next slide, please. So the, the final kind of exile we're, we're going to uh, discuss is Killian, uh, who was already a bishop when he left Ireland with uh, companions as a peregrinus in the 680s. And uh, Killian is, of course, the, the patron of uh, Würzburg and Franconia in, in Germany. The Passio Killiani, written more than 100 years after the martyrdom of the saint, simply notes that Killian was born in Ireland and that he was held in esteem by the clergy and the people who are greatly devoted to the Christian religion. He was moved by a passage in Luke's Gospel to leave Ireland as an exile for Christ. More detailed Passio Secunda Killiani, written in the later 9th century, notes that he travelled to Britain first before travelling to France. Passio Secunda clarifies that Killian left Ireland to go to Rome on pilgrimage to seek permission to preach to the pagans at Gentes, but was moved to seek permission from Pope John V. Pope John had died at that point when he arrived and Pope Conan had been elected. And the Pope gave Killian permission to evangelize on hearing from where he came from, so Ireland, and he returned to Würzburg where he was said to have converted uh, the local Duke Gosbert. But as the Duke had married the wife of his brother, Killian asked him to uh, leave his wife, which he agreed to do. But Gailana, um, his shunned wife, had Killian and two companions beheaded at night and secretly buried. So in the photograph on the right, you see the three heads, uh, several uh, skulls of uh, Saints Killian and his two. Uh, Irish uh, uh, companions. Gosbert was later killed by his own men and his line wiped out while we were told that Gailana was possessed by an evil spirit and soon died. So the Passio whether it was written around the time of the translation of the relics or later in the ninth century was written much later to the events it recounts. The focus is on Killian as a missionary preacher, bishop and martyr. The Franconian author shows little interest or knowledge about Ireland, merely praising the devotedness of the Irish, which is shown in the prompt reception of Killian by the Pope. The author of Passio Secunda does note that Ireland was once condemned for being a hotbed of Pelagian uh, heresy. Uh, next slide, please. The Passio uh, Secunda is more detailed and interested in Ireland. Uh, noting that prior to leaving Ireland, Killian was a monk and abbot, not a bishop. And uh, he notes that we see here the, the two Latin names that were uh, used for Ireland, Scotia and Hibernia. Um, Killian is one of the few Irish martyrs from the early Middle Ages, and the focus is on Killian's martyrdom not his place of origin, although there's greater interest in the uh, later Passio Secunda. The interest in martyrdom in the Carolingian period 
is also reflected in the interest shown in the martyrdom of the monk Lothmach and his companions on Iona by Vikings and the subsequent hagiography written by Walford Strabo of Reichenau in southern Germany, showing the dyna dynamism of the links between the Irish church and this region of southern Germany. Uh, next slide, please. So this is showing Martyrs Bay in Iona, where 68 monks were martyred here by Vikings in, in 806. Uh, Blothmach was, was martyred later uh, in, in the ninth century. Irish identity and the concept of the Irish nation was already present at the close of the sixth century and is evident from texts written in the seventh century. Thomas O'Loughlin and Patrick Wadden have both shown the role of Patrick's late seventh century hagiographers in betraying the Irish as a people formed by the conversion to Christianity through the apostolic mission of Patrick. Muirku saw Christianity in terms of a community, a new people, and the need to see salvation in communal rather than individualistic terms. His account of Patrick's lighting the Easter vigil fire on the hill of Slane in defiance of the king is seen in terms of Patrick's baptizing the whole island and nation. The Irish are referred to as Hibernenses in Tyrakon and are contrasted with other barbarian peoples, making Tyrakon's statement one of the most striking early medieval assertions of Irish national identity, according to Patrick Wadden. This sense of common Irish identity was also reflected in the vernacular and legal texts of the seventh century, demonstrating a common ancestry, language, and law of the Irish people, modeled on Israel and the Old Testament. Although there's evidence for ethnic variety and plurality before Irish ethnogenesis consolidated in the seventh century in response to church concerns as Gens and Ecclesia, people and church became synonymous as in Anglo-Saxon England. In both Anglo-Saxon England and in Ireland, this process was linked to the role of Pope Gregory the Great in the case of England and Patrick in the case of Ireland. So just uh, to conclude, in the race to claim ecclesiastical priestess in the seventh century, Armagh triumphed over Kildare's claims by in part outgunning them in producing a series of hagiographical texts and by political alliance with the most powerful Irish dynasty, the Enail. As Patrick Wadden noted, the rapid spread of Patrick's cult propelled by Armagh promoted also the concept of Irish national identity, with the Seancas Moore, Ireland's most important law book written between 660 and 680 at Armagh, uses the phrase the island of Ireland and this island, reflecting Armagh's network of churches spread throughout the island. The resolution of the Easter dating controversy after 664 and the hagiographical works written in the later 7th century contributed to this greater sense of greater national unity when authors writing at the behest of Armagh promoted the idea that the Irish nation was united in the past, present and future by its place in salvation history. Having been converted by their national apostle and awaiting his future judgment, the people of Ireland were to be united on earth as a national church under the authority of his successors at Armagh. So next slide. Um, this is a still from the uh, document, film documentary, I Am Patrick, uh, which can be found uh, uh, online. So it's an excellent 
documentary on, uh, on, on Patrick. The seventh century was really therefore foundational to the development of Irish ethnic identity. It was during this century that biblical models of ethnicity and divine election through baptism and conversion to Christianity helped consolidate and shape the emergence of the idea of the Irish as a unified people. This was promoted and advanced by churchmen at Armagh and other ecclesiastical centres where the cult of Patrick as Ireland's national apostle was promoted and fostered. The commemoration and celebration of Patrick in the liturgy uh, on his feast day on the 17th of March in different places undoubtedly contributed to this forming of a national community. Thank you. Thanks very much, Alex. That was a wonderful uh, and, and really amazing tour through several centuries um, and across multiple spaces. I was lucky to be taught by Dovio Cronin in, in, in Galway uh, the good 20 years ago. So it was a real pleasure, even from a personal point of view, to be to be back in the world of Adam Nan and Tiracon and, and, and everybody else. And I, I learned so much from listening to that talk, as I'm sure our, our online audience have as well. Uh, there'll be lots of questions coming in in the Q&A, and I'm sure there's a few there already. I'm going to use the privilege of the chair and, and ask the first one while they come in, Alex. Uh, as it happens, I'm sitting in Drumcondra uh, tonight, and technically speaking, I'm, I'm even in the parish of St. Columba, uh, around the corner from uh, St. Columba uh, and I, on Iona Road, which is a sort of a 1902-1905 parish uh, where in the, the grounds of, of, of St. Columba, you'll find even a statue of, of Columba, uh, I think erected in 1997 to mark uh, the centenaries of his birth, or his death, I should say, sorry, excuse me. So my question is about monuments and memory and, and how the memory and, and I, you know, so much of your talk was about memory and, and mythology and, and identity as you, as you sort of ended on. I mean, Broadly speaking, you know, if I, if I think about the creation of Columba Parish and if I, if I think about Iona Road and the sort of peak moment of the memory of, of, of Columba in particular, uh, I suppose it coincides with, with a peak of, of, of Catholic dominance uh, and, and cultural sort of remembrance uh, between, you know, broadly speaking, 1890s and about 1940s. I, I wonder if you'd comment just from your position now, thinking about this moment as the sort of 15th centenary of his birth, you know, how much the ground has shifted in, in, in how we remember a figure like Columba and how his relationship, I suppose, to Irish identity has changed uh, between now and, and, and the last centenary, if you like. Uh, it's a broad question, but I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, yeah, certainly. So um, one of the, the I, I know more about um, Columbanus than, than I do about, about Columba, but I've been really struck by, you know, through my organization of this series that, We've got people from all over the world joining in from Australia, from Canada. And I think also, you know, because he's such a big figure in, in Scottish cultural memory and, and, and uh, um, the, the building of the, the Scottish nation as well. And I highly recommend Gilbert Marcus's excellent new book on, on conceiving a nation about Scotland. Um, so, um, and I've been quite impressed actually with the, the many cultural events that have been organized this year to, to commemorate um, uh, Columbia. It's been slightly surprising from, from my perspective, but there, there seems to have been a lot of kind of cultural engagement in terms of music, 
as a kind of figure connecting uh, Northern Britain and, and Ireland, and particularly this time that's quite important. And what I've seen in my own studies and through Columbanus is that um, these figures can still be very powerful in terms of bridge figures. So uh, there's the uh, Columbanus Festival coming up in, in Bangor County Down. And that was a real eye-opener for me because I hadn't thought about how these pre-Reformation figures can still act as as uh, bridge figures. So the Columbanus Festival, I think, is is an amazing um, example of, of uh, the continuing relevance of these figures for contemporary society. So I, I, I was there twice and, um, you know, all the different faith communities in Bangor come together. There's the um, lectures in, in the Catholic uh, parish, parish community. There's then a musical evening in the Church of Ireland, uh, the Anglican uh, Church. And there's usually a prayer service then the Presbyterian or, or um, uh, so that was a real eye opener for me. And, um, um, you know, and, and it, 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 it reminds us not to dismiss uh, th this period and, and that there can still be kind of contemporary ways that we can engage with, with, with these stories. And um, particularly now in terms of um, say Columbanus as well, is that, um, you know, Robert Schumann, his cause for canonization is, has now been opened. You know, one of the founders of the European Union, um, but he organized the conf conference on Columbanus in 1950, July 1950. Um, but behind the scenes there, there was a lot of negotiations in terms of his vision for uh, what would become the Euro European coal and steel community that were, were going on in the background of this academic conference. So um, I think the ground has radically shifted. Uh, I would say there's no doubt, ab doubt about that. I think Derek Scally's book, The Best Catholics in the World, is, gives a fantastic um, you know, uh, analysis of, of, this, of this change. We, um, he's uh, slightly a little bit older than me, but we grew up in the same area of, of uh, Rohini in, in, in Dublin. And so I think he did a really good job in kind of diagnosing where we are now. And, um, but uh, I think there's a, perhaps a, a new openness to, um, uh, to engaging with, with, with these stories. And, and it's, it's, it's pleasantly surprising to see how, uh, how contemporary audiences are, are engaging with, it, with this material. Yeah, no, that's great. And it's always interesting to see what new uses a story can be put to, in a sense, you know, no longer made to stood simply for a greater Ireland and its missionary culture, but also now a bridge, you know, across. I'll, I'll give you a quick example, just another example, which really surprised me again was this son of a um, cult in, in, in Norway in my, my recent book there. But what really surprised me again when I went to Norway in, in 2018, we had a conference there and, you know, son is basically an Irish queen who's now the kind of patron of Bergen and said to have been fled Ireland because of um, wanted to avoid a, a marriage to a kind of a aggressive uh, um, pagan and um, ends up in in Norway and, and is martyred there. But for contemporary Norwegians, she's seen up, she's held as kind of a Me Too heroine, wow. fleeing kind of uh, male male kind of aggression. And also the whole thing about like the boat people and migrants and refugees. So, 
and again, the, you know, this was an, an aspect of the, the cult that, you know, I, uh, when you're working in, in the historical material. So it's very exciting for me as a historian to see how these stories are still being engaged yeah. with. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to move to questions from the, the, the audience, which are, are many of, and I'm going to try and get to, to, to as many as I can. So the first question in from Bernice is, would you say that there's evidence that external exile from homeland was an important feature of Irish peregrinatio? The Peregrini vowed never to return to Ireland, or is it just coincidental that Peregrini rarely returned to the island? To the island? Yeah, I think... Um... Certainly in Columbanus's case, there, there's a sense that uh, this was a, a ritual. This was a, a kind of a vow. He didn't want to come back to Ireland. He, he, um, he was about to be deported back. And, and uh, for him, it was a lifetime commitment. Um, but we know, for example, that, that Columba had, had frequent contacts with, with Ireland. So, so, so did, did Adathlon. So I think there is kind of flexibility in, in uh, uh, but I think, for the vast majority, there, um, there was a sense of, um, I like to compare it to the Aboriginal, uh, Australian Aboriginal thing of walkabout, where um, it's a kind of a ritual, it's a ritual activity, um, and it's a sense of being guided by the Holy Spirit. So they didn't really have particular destinations in mind. It was like, I'm, I'm going to Rome, um, but it was really kind of openness to the Holy Spirit and see where the, the, the Holy Spirit would would take them. But I think there, the whole thing with the early Irish church is that there's a lot of fluidity and um, there's a lot of flexibility. So it's um, I think there's to, to be mindful of that. Okay, yeah. Some lovely comments in here from Adrian Hume and Dennis Jordan, uh, Adrian, uh, just noting the connection between St. Killian School and Bray and, and the fact that they have a sort of connection to, to school in Würzburg and then Dennis, I think following on from what you've just spoken about, that just noting that idea of what you really enjoyed in your lecture is this idea of the kind of constant dialogue between Ireland and Europe and, and both the influence it has on, on, on this island and the, the influence the island has outwards. Uh, but the question I, I would pose is from Sarah Myers, who asks, uh, to what extent did the monks of continental Irish monasteries identify with the uniquely Irish vision of Christianity and the island itself, or was the Irish connection uh, solely based on their Irish founders. I mean, I suppose, what is the everlasting, you know, what's the, the longevity of that Irish connection, I suppose, in a way? Well, I think there's different phases. There's different phases that we can we can identify. I would say there's broadly kind of three three phases. Um, so you have the, uh, you know, the, the seventh century kind of phase, then you have the later uh, scholars that are going during the Carolingian period. Um, and then you have the, um, the shot cluster kind of phase uh, later in, in the 11th and, and 12th centuries. Um, so I think, um, again, it, it's very, very varied, I would say. Um, uh, we're, we're not talking about kind of monolithic um, kind of movements. Um, I think there's, there's places which have a stronger sense of uh, this connection. I, I, St. Gaul or St. Gallen is, is a prime example uh, of, of that, where there clearly is a continuing um, connection with, with Ireland and with, with Irish pilgrims. Um, and, um, and also what I, what I, I think a sense of what I call hiberno-ethno-sanctity, which is um, where you have cases of obscure saints who are given Irish origins that they're essentially um, 
kind of invented saints um, or uh, saints who were Germanic and given uh, an Irish identity. So I think that, and we, we have cases of, 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 of those in continental Europe. Magnus of Fusen is, is one, one example of that. And I think it, 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 it shows the extent to which um, um, this link to Ireland uh, was, was, uh, was still there. But again, it, it, it varies. So um, there's debate in terms of Bobbio, to what extent it maintained that kind of Irish, uh, Irish uh, um, uh, lineage. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, I suppose a question that will kind of roll these two together from Raymond and, and Robert. Uh, Raymond asks, uh, please talk about the Celtic determination of Easter as opposed to the Roman one. Uh, does this represent a larger difference in perspectives on the Christian message or its interpretation? I suppose a more generic question from Robert, just what's the difference between the Roman church and the Celtic church? But, you know, I suppose you can answer them together. Yeah, as, as a, I'm not going to go into the Easter dating controversy because it's just, uh, uh, it's a minefield. It's quite complicated. Um, essentially, there's, there's different uh, ways for calculating the, the feast, feast, which of course is a, is a movable feast. It's not resolved by the Je un, until I think the 16th or 17th centuries by, by the Jesuits with this question. So essentially, the Irish are following uh, the 84 year cycle, which was a, an, old, an older form um, uh, of, of uh, calculation that was in, in, in use in, in Rome. And then there's a, a, a new uh, method developed by uh, Victorious of Aquitaine. Um, but essentially, it's, it's about authority and where, where authority lies, but also about unity. It's important for the question of, of, of unity. Um, it's not really resolved until the uh, the the um, uh, eighth eighth century, um, but it is it is certainly a significant factor, and it's um, it it leads to the question of are the Irish um, kind of heterodox, um, and I think that's why you see in Columbanus this kind of emphasis of of of, uh, of orthodoxy. Um, uh, and in terms of, you know, it's more helpful to think in terms of micro Christendoms, um, this idea that um, um, there, there isn't a specific Celtic church, they're, they're certainly uh, looking to Rome, and we see, we've seen that with, with, with Columbanus, that, that, uh, that their links with Rome, um, and their kind of lineage from Rome is, is very important. Um, but there's, again, um, in this period, there's a lot of um, uh, different customs um, and regional variations. So it's what Peter Brown calls micro Christendoms. There's still, you know, the, um, but there's a lot of uh, variation. I, uh, I think the best overview of the Easter question, the most accessible uh, um, article on this, is by Kathleen Corning on the Easter Easter controversy. That gives a very good kind of um, description of it, but essentially, uh, it's it's to do with calculating um, the, the feast of Easter, and there's different uh, ways of, of of doing that, and then that leads to um, because some years you were celebrating Easter the same same day, other do, other years you might be a bit out, and 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 um, uh, but it, it does lead to problems with with Columbanus and and, and others. It's a, a perennial of, of this period, isn't it? It's a, this Easter dating controversy. It, it, I don't think it'll ever go away. 
Um, very good. Uh, last question from the audience tonight before we wrap up, um, Alex, is from Maura Foley, who, who says, would you say that the Irish legal system influenced the interpretation of regulation and practice of Christianity in wider Europe? Yeah, it's a, it's a good, good question. Um, the legal system. Yeah, I think um, the understanding now is, is that um, uh, that both are um, I mean, coterminously co with, with, uh, within Christian circles uh, in, in Ireland. Uh, but we know from the Collectio Canonum Hypernensis that uh, it had a, a quite a significant influence in, in, um, in Europe and, and in terms of reception in Europe. Um, so, but certainly this kind of, I, this kind of biblical lens and and um the influence say particularly of the old testament and ireland is a bit unusual there in terms of um so ireland has a in terms of the um veneration for patriarchs in in, in the old testament is quite quite unusual um but so i think the the kind of biblical framework let's say does influence the, the rest of Europe. We can see this with one example of this would be the uh, royal anointing rituals, right? Of of uh, first case of that is um, Columba who anoints um, um, Aidan MacGowron, um, but using this kind of as a kind of a Samuel figure, anointing uh, the king with holy with holy oil, and then we see this then in the seven fifties when Pippin becomes the first Carolingian and first um, Christian monarch to be um, have this kind of royal anointing uh, ritual, which is essentially uh, uh, biblical. Thanks so much, Alex, and enormous thanks to you for such a, a wide-ranging lecture. I mean, you can see from the comments uh, and the Q&A just how much people have enjoyed it, uh, much as I have, I have to say. Uh, so uh, as we kind of bring the, the session to a close, I, I, I just want to thank the brilliant uh, events team here at the Trinity Long Room Hub, Francesca, Aoife, and Emily and all the team to acknowledge the Loyola Institute's uh, support of the series uh, Alex has organized. Uh, and also uh, just to note that some of our audience tonight might be in interested in attending an in-person event at Trinity Long Room Hub. The next one of those, and there are very few of them, uh, is on Friday the 26th of November to commemorate a, a relative baby compared to Columba and some of the people that Alex were talking about. It's the fifth centenary of, of William Cecil, so first Baron Burley, who amongst many other things was the first provost of Trinity College Dublin itself for a brief period in the late 16th century. So you can find a registration for that and any of our other events uh, on the Trinity Long Room Hub website. We'd love for you to sign up and to attend again. Um, so it just leaves it to me to thank you. Uh, thank you for attending and to thank our speaker for a really brilliant event. Thank you. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.